the regulation pendulum goes from leave us alone, we're fine, you don't need to regulate us at all, to oh my god, they're killing the American people, they, every single thing that gets done needs to be regulated. Uh, the pendulum swing goes back and forth, it has for the past, well, since 1976. The swings are getting smaller, which is a good thing because it means that we're honing in on a nice balance between mm -hmm. appropriately protecting the public health while appropriately promoting the public health. Welcome to another episode of MedTech Mindset. I'm your host, Dan Henrich, and I'm Director of Marketing at SmithWise. This episode, we're going to be talking about regulatory affairs and how the FDA regulates medical devices. Now, depending on your experience, what I just said may have either given you a little pang of fear or made you drowsy, but I'm going to suggest that it really shouldn't do either. The more I learn about medical device regulation, I've become confident of two things. One, it's actually a really interesting topic with implications in a lot of different areas. And two, it's complex, but it's not unintelligible. So I hope this episode convinces you of both of those things as well. My guest today is Monica Ferrante, a regulatory expert. She has decades of experience working in regulatory and quality roles within established and startup device companies. She's also worked as a consultant and as a professor, and even as an FDA reviewer. As an undergraduate, she studied biomedical engineering, and she holds graduate degrees in physiology and public administration. So quite the impressive resume, and we're honored she took the time to share her insights with us. So let's jump into my conversation with Monica. Well, Monica, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you coming down. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your, your background and uh, before we delve into our, our topic? Sure. I'm Monica Ferrante. I've been doing uh, regulatory affairs for medical devices for, oh, probably more than 30 years. <laughs> so I've been through the evolution. Um, I've worked for uh, large companies as well as startup companies um, and done a fair amount of consulting as well. So I have a pretty good breadth of device types, I guess, if you will. Great. Great. And what's your current role? Uh, my current role is Vice President of Regulatory and Quality at Aspire Bariatrics. And uh, what type of products are you working on there? So it's a medical device for weight loss. Um, it was a PMA submission because it's a novel um, application of a device. Mm -hmm. um, and we were able to get through that process in less than a year and get the product approved and on the market. Great. So, Congratulations. Thank you. That's great. Um, so we already we already threw out the term PMA here. I think we have quite a, a variety of, of um, folks in our audience who are listening to this. Some of them know just what a PMA is, and they know what it, what constitutes a Class One device or a Class right. Three device from from FDA's perspective, and others don't. So um, can we just briefly sort of run through you know what are device classes and what would be an example of of kind of the different types of devices that would fall into the different risk classifications at FDA? So sure. Um, actually, the FDA started regulating medical devices pre-market in 1976, which may be a long time ago to some people, but not to me. Um, and at that time, they went through all of the medical devices that existed at the time, and they classified them. The purpose of classification was to assign a risk criteria, and then based on that risk, they would develop the regulatory pathways for bringing new products to market. 
So a class one device um, is the lowest risk. Uh, they are devices that are simple and straightforward. There was um, good historical data on their use and simple and straightforward to use. So an example of a class one device would be a manual surgical instrument like a scalpel or a hemostat, something like that. Um, class two devices are sort of the middle risk, if you will, um, moderate risk. Back in those days, the, the intent was if there was a standard or a standard could be written for that particular product, um, in other words, the, the safety aspects and performance aspects were well enough defined that you could write a standard, um, then they would fall into class two, and, um, and that's how they determined that, that particular classification. Everything else fell into class three, which is the highest risk. Um, so that was generally intended for new technologies, implants, um, things like uh, um, devices that had never been um, used before or an intended use that, that hadn't been thought of for a particular product. Um, for each of those classifications, uh, there's a, a typical but not always guaranteed regulatory pathway. Um, for class one devices, the FDA in the past several years has actually exempted a lot of those devices from any uh, pre-market approval process. Um, although there are a few remaining that, that would require a submission to the agency. Class two devices uh, typically go through what's called a pre-market notification process or 510K. Um, that process is intended to establish substantial equivalence. Mm -hmm. So basically it's a me too process. There are already products on the market like a ventilator or a defibrillator or a radiant warmer, incubator, whatever. Um, product that's already on the market um, that already has certain features and functionality. In those cases there are all um, consensus standards for uh, basic safety and performance. Um, so those types of devices uh, would go through the 510K process and they would receive um, permission or clearance to market after going, after going through the review process. Uh, for a PMA, since it's new technology or a new indication for use for a current technology and the risk is considered to be high because you don't know what the risk is mm -hmm. at that point, um, generally a, a clinical study is required um, a phase one study or a pilot study to, on a small population to determine basic safety, um, and then a pivotal trial, which would provide statistical significance of the claims that you want to make for that particular product. Uh, the timeframes for, for these submissions, um, uh, there's a statutory timeframe. So for a 510K, the FDA has 90 days to review your submission. That's actual review time. Uh, simpler class two devices will probably go through in a little bit less or in 90 days. Um, more complicated submissions may take longer, particularly if the agency has to ask you for uh, additional information. But their clock or their target time frame is 90 days. For a pre-market approval, they have 180 days to review all of the information. There will almost always be a request for additional information yeah, in a PMA. <laughs> um, so a PMA that's reviewed and approved anywhere between 180 days and one year is actually um, really 
great review time and it means the submission was well prepared and all the information the FDA needed to make their decision was there. Okay. So um, a 510K, you know, is, is uh, limited to, to class two products that have a, what's called a predicate. Is that correct? Yes. Um, what about when you're dealing with a class two product that, de- or something that would be defined as a class two level of risk or, or ultimately be defined as a class two level of risk, but doesn't have a clear predicate? What does the pathway look and the timing look like for that? Okay. So when there isn't a predicate device, um, the product is automatically a class three and requires a PMA. Uh, the FDA several years ago introduced a process called a de novo process, mm-hmm. which allows for a submission and pretty much at the same time a classification of a new device that has low risk. Um, the de novo submission may look a lot like a 510K, and, but it will probably include clinical data. Uh, de novo submission review time, statutory review time, is 120 days. Again, if you have a lot of information to review um, or if your clinical study um, has a lot of data associated with it and there are questions, um, that time frame can extend, but the statutory time frame is 120 days. Okay. And um, so does that mean that typically then you said when a new device you know, a device without a clear predicate comes to the FDA, they, they automatically assign it as a class three. Uh, what would be the motivation for trying to get that class brought down to a class two? Would it, would it help you get through regulatory faster or would it just lower the barrier for, you know, a competitor to come along and cite your device as a predicate? Well, it does both. Okay. Um, Actually, the purpose of a de novo is that the FDA was receiving PMAs, full 180-day statistically significant clinical studies on devices that were extremely low risk. Mm -hmm. And their thinking is that that is not a good use of their time, the taxpayers' dollars, or the company's time and resources. And that's bad for patients, right? And Yeah, and... Patients would be able to have access to that technology much sooner. So they created the de novo process so that it would be a streamlined process where they could review information um, and be able to give it a classification. Um, it may still end up being a class three device depending on, on how things um, pan out with the review process and what concerns there are remaining with the device. Um, it may not be the physical device itself. It may be the application or the intended use of the device that puts you into class three. Um, but the benefits of having that classification are, are several fold. It's a shorter review time. The burden of proof is usually um, lessened in terms of uh, clinical data. And then the follow-on, um, a 510K submission and uh, de novo submission that are approved, uh, if you make changes to the device or if you make tweaks and adjustments to your manufacturing processes and so forth, the FDA addresses those when they come through for their um, QSR inspections. For a PMA, anything you change, any change to your labeling, any change to your product, any change to your manufacturing processes, you have to submit a supplement and pay the associated fees Mm -hmm. 
uh, get that approved before you can implement it. So it extends every process significantly, not just the initial approval, but the ongoing maintenance, if you will, of that product. Okay. And um, would that be the same process if you if you want to if you if your device is approved for a particular patient population and you want um, you want say to to use it uh, you want it approved for pediatrics or for for uh, some some other patient population is that a supplement that you have to submit or do you have to start the process over again for your new uh, indication. You Is generally, it indication? So, yeah. yeah. So if you, so for example, if you have a PMA that's approved for the adult population, and per your example, you wanted to expand it into a pediatric population, you would have to do a study, mm-hmm. um, and you would have to submit that to the FDA. Um, if it's the same product, it's under the auspices of the original PMA, but it's still a 180-day supplement with all of that additional clinical data and analysis. So it's effectively doing another PMA to mm-hmm. expand that patient population. Mm-hmm. So my guess would be then is, you know, when you're advising young companies who have maybe not brought a medical device to market before, um, there are different pathways that they may be able to take in terms of uh, who will be, what's their first application for this device, what's, mm-hmm. you know, who's the intended patient population. Um, and that ties into their overall go-to-market and business strategy, right? If they want to establish a, right. a beachhead in a particular area and have some type of revenue stream that that can then support a, a, a further study or whatever sure. they need to to um, expand into a larger market. Sure. Yeah. An example of that would be uh, ventilators. So a ventilator is a class two device. Um, you prepare a five ten k submission and you get clearance to market and you bring it to market, there's an application on a ventilator called high-frequency or oscillatory ventilation that's Mm -hmm. used in premature babies. Mm -hmm. That application is a PMA application. So in order to have that feature on your ventilator, you have to do the clinical study and you have to submit it to the FDA and get that PMA approved. So that's kind of an example of a company might want to bring a new ventilator to market start bringing in the revenue and use that to fund their study for that oscillatory ventilation claim or feature. Got it. it. Okay. So um, that ties in next uh, nicely, I guess, to our, to our next question, which is if you are, you know, a new, a new venture, a company that's perhaps forming around the new medical technology that you're looking to bring to market, um, how early do you need to, begin talking with someone experienced about, you know, your regulatory pathway and how will it tie into your, um, your go-to-market plan? I think it's really important to start the conversation early. It'll be a preliminary conversation. There may not be anything from a regulatory perspective that you have to do, but understanding what the device is, what you really want it to do in the market or for your patients, um, and understanding what the potential regulatory pathway is, is important. To your point, it may be a product that, you know, if you, if you bring it to market minus one claim, you might be able to get it on the market through the 510K process and give yourself a revenue stream to, to build out the rest of it. It might be that it's a PMA from the get-go, mm-hmm. um, or it might be that it's low enough risk, or you can reduce the risk enough 
um, by design to to possibly fit into the de novo process. So understanding which path you're headed down and sort of where the lines are, what pushes you over the threshold from a 510K into a de novo or a PMA is important to know so that you can make the right business decisions. So I think what, what we often find with our, our clients at, uh, at Smithwise is that their regulatory strategy impacts, you know, not just our design process, but you know the, the really the, the the market feasibility of their of their product, um, and so very often when we speak with with someone who has kind of an exciting new technology, um, usually I would say they have thought about you know you know they come in and say oh well this is going to be a five ten k so it's no big deal, um, but they may have a pretty broad idea of the claims that they're going to be able to make for their product and their business model might account for you know different market segments that are maybe not going to be able to fall under that simple of a process Um, so i think that's one of the reasons we're covering this topic now is because there's a lot of um we we see both kind of a dismissive attitude on the part of some medtech entrepreneurs of the regulatory process because people think of the 510k pathway as no big deal and we also see a lot of anxiety on the part of of others, maybe they're be- maybe they're better informed ones, um, but they're they're a little bit paralyzed by the regulatory process as well, and um, and so it's great for them to be able to uh, to uh, start thinking through these things. Uh, but often we we will bring in regulatory support uh, mm-hmm. early on in the in the design process as we're coaching people through what we call phase zero of of product development. Um, so it's it's uh, yeah well it's great to uh, to have um, you know folks like you to, to call on in those situations. Um, so I think a lot of the anxiety that that people feel centers around um, interactions with FDA, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I have heard from uh, from a lot of people who have dealt with the FDA very intimately over the course of their careers that there's been a big shift in kind of the agency's um, approachability, you might say, uh, or, uh, or there have been, you know, positive, there's been a positive evolution of interactions between industry and, and, uh, and the FDA uh, in the past few years. Can you tell me a little bit about the negotiation process and, you know, um, when, how do you know, you know, how much information to provide to FDA and when to start that conversation and, you know, are you ever afraid to say, you know, too much too early before you have your data together or, you know? So their process has changed and it's actually well documented in in a guidance document as far as the meetings that you can ask for versus the submissions, the pre-submissions that you can have them review. the reason for that whole evolution is because having an open loop, having an open loop system <laughs> is not beneficial to either side of the equation. Yeah. I mean, if you think you've prepared a proper 510k or a proper PMA and you submit it to the agency and they pick it up and they go, "Oh my god. <laughs> Half of what we need is just not here and it's because they didn't know. You know, maybe it's a product there's no guidance document for or something." Um it wastes the company's time and resources, and it wastes the FDA's time and resources. So they've 
discovered and have been given permission or latitude, if you will, um, to have this open communication, to, uh, to foster those early conversations so they can understand, A, where technology is going. Because if industry doesn't bring it to them, they go out, but they may not get access to knowing what the newest, greatest things are that are going on and how can you regulate something you know nothing about. So um, they've sort of opened the doors a little bit uh, so that those conversations can happen. It's important for a company to meet with the FDA once they know enough about their product mm -hmm. to have some real questions. Um, coming in and saying, hey, I have this idea, what should I do about it? you're going to get a blank stare. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and actually, the processes won't let you do that. So if you're requesting a meeting or you're doing a pre-submission, the guidance document tells you what information you have to provide to the agency. You have to describe your product. You have to describe what areas you have questions and concerns about and what are those questions so that the meeting or the pre-submission review can be meaningful. Mm -hmm. So the earlier, the better. As long as you actually have something yeah. to work with. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and so do you ever have a client uh, or, or a situation where, um, you know, the person coming at this from the industry side may be concerned that, um, you know, a pre-submission meeting will lock them into um, a particular approach that they're not ready to commit to? Um. Well, the guidance documents actually describe a formal, um, and this is generally in the area of clinical studies, a formal pre-IDE meeting. Um, and if you request a formal meeting, the information that you have to have to go into the meeting is much more extensive, and you will get concrete binding information on both sides of the equation. So okay. what you're told is binding, what they're told is binding. Nobody really does those meetings. Yeah. Um, Generally, you want to request an informal meeting. Okay. So, so within an informal meeting, um, the the uh, I don't guidance maybe is a, a bad word to use because it has <laughs> official connotations. Yes. Uh, in this in this uh, area, but um, the the feedback that you get from the agency in an informal meeting um, is that it's informal. It's not. It doesn't bind the agency to to right. look at things in the exact same way when your actual submission comes in. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Because what you may be submitting may be different than what you discussed in the meeting. Right. So in those meetings, the company is trying to understand some aspect of, of their product, their submission, um, and they're the experts. So they're there to explain what the product is, what their goals are for um, the market clearance for the device and for their patient population and so forth. What the FDA's goal is in that meeting is to say, okay, I'm hearing what this is. Here's what we're going to need to successfully review that submission when you bring it to us based on the regulations and based on you know what the market requirements are. So those are sort of the two sides of the equation. They're not going to tell you how to do your job mm -hmm. or what to do with the product. They're going to tell you what they need to uh, review it based on what you've told them the device is going to do. A quick break here to remind you that MedTech Mindset is a production of Smithwise, a medical device developer that helps innovators struggling with technical, 
regulatory, or manufacturing challenges with their next new product. If you have questions about your MedTech project, feedback, positive or critical on this episode, or a suggestion of a topic or guest for the future, please visit us on the web at smithwise.com and click on the Contact Us button. We love hearing from our listeners. So one thing I want to ask you about, Monica, is uh, you mentioned, I think in your, your last response, you, you used the term IDE. Um, can you tell our listeners, you know, what is an IDE and how does it fit into, um, you know, uh, the various um, regulatory pathways? Yeah, I apologize for the acronyms. It's a world of acronyms out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I believe one of your other podcasts had to do with clinical studies. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. IDE is Investigational Device Exemption. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, if you have a product that requires a clinical study to go through the review process at the FDA, you will most likely require an investigational device exemption. Um, and it's a document that you submit to the FDA that describes the clinical study, the patient population, sample size, statistical analysis you plan to do, so forth and so mm-hmm. on. Um, an approved IDE is required for what's called a significant risk device. Um, and if you have a non-significant risk device, um, which would be something like a patient monitoring system that could be, you know, monitoring a patient while their normal device is, is taking care of their health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so a non-significant risk device, you would still need all of that same documentation, but you wouldn't need to submit it to FDA and get an approval back prior to starting your study. Okay. So it's so it's really the approval to, to use your device within certain clinical study parameters on humans. Is that yes. correct? And interestingly and, enough, the exemption <laughs> technically is not for the study. It's technically to allow you to take your unapproved product across state lines. Okay, interstate commerce Just, clause. It yeah, is, it is. I remember is. that from con law. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, uh, so. Uh, for most 510k products, though, where you're not required to perform a clinical study, you can you can submit preclinical data, right? In terms of showing substantial equivalence, is that is that yes. how it works? 510ks are me too. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to submit uh, performance data to standards to your requirements and so forth. The FDA just came out with a new guidance document um, called Safety and Performance for 510ks where they're expanding the abbreviated 510K process mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's to say that you don't have to take your predicate device and do a comparative bench study anymore. Um, you can do what they've actually always allowed you to do in the past, which is do a study against a standard and provide that data. So okay. just an aside. And what about... Um uh, I know there have been recent changes or, or, or proposed changes uh, to limit the body of available predicates to a more recent period of time. Um, is that going to... Imp- That's kind of part of this same guidance. Okay. Um, but what they're really trying to do is is make sure that you're comparing yourself to something that's reasonable in terms of, you know, sort of the state of technology. Um, Claiming a predicate device from 1980, um, depending on what the product is, may or may not be reasonable to Mm -hmm. do. So they want you to be working on state-of-the-art product. 
um, to the extent that, yeah. you know. Yeah. So does substantial equivalence then mean that you're, you're now going to have to demonstrate that your predicate is not just has not just previously been approved by the agency, but it's sort of predicated off of a standard of off of the standard of care effectively or what that does is that eases your process. So for example, if you have an electromedical device, go back to the ventilator. Um, there's a performance standard for a ventilator which tells you about the features and functionalities that all ventilators should have. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the 601 standard, which is electrical and mechanical safety, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then EMI standards to make sure that you're not emitting or susceptible to um, radio interference. Uh, so your submission would have to have test data to all of those requirements. And then your predicate device would be something fairly recent that also has testing to those same standards. Um, And the way you get at that is on the FDA website, you pull up the summary of safety and effectiveness that's that's on the the website for your predicate device, and you'll be able to see what testing they did compared to, you know, what you're planning to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. so this all sort of ties into a, a, a conversation that I've I've been a part of recently. Uh, you know, if I'm at a cocktail party or <laughs> you know uh, just out and about, you know, uh, making small talk. Of course, when you meet someone, they ask, uh, "What do you do?" and what you know, what kind of company is that that you that you work for? And when when I mention that my company designs medical devices, uh, often they bring up. Uh, I found one of one of two things. One is there's a there's a Netflix documentary uh, called The Bleeding Edge, uh, and um, there was also a, uh, a Wall Street Journal article published I think at the beginning of this year or maybe the very end of last year. Um, and basically the 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 uh, the narrative that that um, these pieces are building is that uh, medical devices are dangerously underregulated by by FDA. Uh, and that they haven't been addressed in the same way that drugs have uh, over the past, say, you know, thirty years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of backlash um, from industry uh, towards those types of sentiments, uh, and I think the way that uh, a lot of members of the public are seeing it is sort of as a, well, who do we believe? Are we going to believe the people who, uh, you know, who? Uh, make money from bringing new drugs to market or new um, new devices to market, or are we going to believe uh, the you know journalists who are documenting this without without an agenda? So I wonder if you could just tell us what are your impressions, sort of of um, of that that general sentiment that FDA has been sort of sitting on its heels for for quite some time and letting their their regulatory system for devices become outdated. Very interesting question. <laughs> I get that question a lot. <laughs> um, actually, there is a push um, in Europe um, to align medical device regulation much more with the way drugs are regulated. And if you look at the overall history of regulation in the United States, I'm talking all the way back to 1906, <laughs> mm-hmm. when it kind of all started. Actually, it started before that. But um, the evolution has always been 
the drug industry being regulated and certain things being applied. And then devices did come along afterwards. There's a pendulum that swings. I think we talked about this a little before we got started. We did, um, but I want our listeners to hear it too. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was well put. <laughs> so the regulation pendulum goes from leave us alone, we're fine, you don't need to regulate us at all, to oh my God, they're killing the American people. They Every single thing that gets done needs to be regulated. Uh, the pendulum swing goes back and forth. It has for the past, well, since 1976, the swings are getting smaller, which is a good thing because it means that we're honing in on a nice balance between mm-hmm. appropriately protecting the public health while appropriately promoting the public health. And in fact, the FDA changed their mission statement several years ago to exactly that. It used to be protect the public health. Mm-hmm. So we need to make sure everything is as safe as it can be no matter how long it takes. Um, it was actually the advent of the AIDS epidemic that caused that philosophy to change and promoting the public health, making sure that our citizens have access to the best and the greatest medicines and medical devices became part of their mission. So it's a scientific process, but the FDA can only evaluate whatever science is put in front of them, um, and they have to evaluate it based on the regulations. So. They try to balance the risk versus the benefit of a particular device. Um, And you try in your clinical studies to determine what those risks are, and you uh, address those risks as best you can through um, uh, risk mitigation and design, through proper um, application of the product to, to the appropriate patient population and so forth. Um, but it is a little bit of an iterative and learning process. It's never going to be 100% the first time out the door. I will say that the agency, being science-based, is is sort of blind to public sentiment in that regard mm-hmm. while they're doing their assessment. There have been times when people have petitioned the FDA and said, you should never have approved that medical device. And it turns out that the people that are making those claims may not understand the number of people that have actually benefited from that therapy and that it's a small subset that has had the issue. So whenever you read these things in the literature or in various social media or publications or whatever, you kind of have to take the perspective of digging into the detail. What is the context of that particular failure and how was it responded to? Mm-hmm. So, and that way, you know, as the public, you can be better informed and you can understand, oh, the FDA didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. They did address it. And now the product can be safely used in a more limited application. Or, you know, the FDA actually has had it right all along. And, you know, one particular event is, is being blown up to be a terrible, terrible travesty when, in fact... It's, it was anticipated and understood by both the medical community and the FDA as something that could potentially happen. There's never any device, or even any drug for that matter, that's zero risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think um, just very few members of the public appreciate is uh, the number of devices, perfectly, perfectly good new medical technologies uh, that simply don't make it to market 
because of a number of things that that derail it from its path. And that might be a regulatory problem or it might be a, a you know a, a market problem that simply the market uh, can't justify the cost of, of developing this device, especially for, for if it's for a, uh, a small patient population. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that we see, you know, we, I think we're, we all become aware of, of, um, th- of things that go wrong and grab top headlines like, uh, you know, uh, superbugs and endoscopes or, um, or you know, uh, the vaginal mesh, uh, you know, class action lawsuits and things like that. Uh, what we don't become aware of, I think, is just members of the public is all the products that that do not make it to market because they've they have encountered some barrier that that they just can't get over for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now being on the inside of the industry, I'm I'm extremely encouraged when I see FDA take uh, proactive steps to to try to lower. Um, Unnecessary barriers while still ensuring, you know, safety and efficacy, right. um, f- so that new devices can come to market, particularly for small patient populations, where the market just to make the 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 market case and make something make business sense and attract the investors that it will take to to um, to develop the product right. uh, can be so difficult. Yeah, yeah, and to that end, the the agency. Um, hasn't lowered its standards, for example, for pediatric devices and so forth, but they have eliminated user fees and things mm-hmm. like that. So they're they're doing within the realm of what they have control of. Right. Um, they're trying to facilitate the whole humanitarian device exemption, or you know, which is the device equivalent of an orphan drug, if you will, um, where they reduce cost, but not necessarily performance thresholds. So that companies that have those kinds of technologies have a much better chance of actually bringing their product to market. Right, right, yeah. Um, I think actually our, 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 I'm not sure if it will be the next podcast to be released, but uh, we have an interview coming up with, uh, with a um, pediatric device specialist. Oh. Uh, and uh, I think he and I are going to talk a bit about what are those programs that, that FDA is instituting to try to compensate for some of the the deficiencies in the in the you know free market model when it comes to bringing <laughs> bringing uh, devices to to market for uh, for underserved populations or for for very um, small patient populations where the it's just difficult to uh, to to overcome that that barrier um, yeah. they can't lower the the safety or <laughs> efficacy standards and we don't want them to but how can the FDA or or how can the Patent and Trademark Office, uh, or how can other government agencies, you know, facilitate um, still navigating those those products through the same regulatory pathway in terms of ensuring that they're safe, uh, but not um, but lower lower barriers in terms of the the overall cost to, to bring them to market. So yeah, yeah. Um, so one other thing, Monica, that I, I certainly wanted to discuss with you is um, we talked a little bit about how when you're evaluating, um, you know, your regulatory strategy, which pathway will you try to steer a, a device down, at least when you're first establishing your, your revenue stream, if you're a, a med tech entrepreneur. Um, what about... Um, 
you know, what about the idea of of bringing a certain type of of product to market, which you know is kind of on the line of whether or not it's actually a medical device or whether it's a piece of consumer mm-hmm. health technology. Um, can you talk a little bit about how how a company might evaluate, you know, whether they want to be regulated as a device and um, and how you know, how they would approach that that situation? Well, that's sort of the very first step of of your product idea. Is it a medical device or is it not a medical device? Or is it something that could bridge? Um, And the FDA has established several guidance documents in areas that are of high activity. So apps, you know, are there apps that should be regulated as a medical device or should they not? And the guidance document addresses that actually pretty clearly. Same thing, when when does exercise equipment become physical therapy equipment uh-huh. and things yeah. like that. So they're trying really hard to provide some framework in terms of when you've crossed the line and you really are a medical device. Um, they actually did that with 23andMe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> when they first came out, they were like, they didn't even think about whether or not they were a medical device. They had no clue, right? Um, interactions with the FDA and, oh, yeah, <laughs> we sort of crossed that line. They did the submissions that they needed to do actually through the de novo process. And now they're adding functionality. They're adding diagnostic. They added a diagnostic for BRCA. So that's been approved um, under a de novo or cleared for market under a de novo. Um, and so forth. So they are expanding on their technology, moving more and more into medical and doing the appropriate regulatory work along with it. So if you're in an area where you're not sure if you're a medical device, that's a really good time to call the FDA and say, hey, (laughs) this is the product. These are the things that we want to say about it. This is what we want it to do. Is there a line or where is there a line? You know, and that doesn't prevent you from staying in the commercial world. Um, It just informs you that when you've crossed the line and you're moving into the medical world, what you'll need to address. Is is coming to market, say, with limited claims as to what your product does, um, is that a strategy that a company might be able to employ in order to gather the data that they will need to show to FDA? Or is that? It sounds like a tricky. Maybe it's maybe well, it's not I mean, a fair question to, to ask it, you, but you you can do that absolutely. The question becomes: How do you gather that data, and what are the processes that you need to do that? Um, so, if you're testing a product that's not a medical device, but you're testing potential medical claims, is it an investigational device that you need yeah. to follow the regulations for clinical studies and informed consent and so forth? So there are a lot of interesting questions there that need to be evaluated. But yeah, it's it's all possible. It's a matter of how you knew, you know sort of work through it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, how about uh, so? It, it's it sounds to me um, that. When you're dealing with a, a young med tech venture and they're they're just starting to think through a lot of these things, um, they really need to, you know, form a relationship early with with you know a, a really qualified regulatory consultant, maybe even one that has experience in in a particular area. 
do you have any recommendations in terms of how um, how people should go about forming those relationships? You know, should they should they take multiple meetings? You know, at first, <laughs> should they? What if they don't feel they have great referral networks? You know, how how should they go about? You know, finding a regulatory consultant and then determining that that person is trustworthy. Yeah, um, there are a lot of ways to do that. There's an organization called RAPS um, that is actually regulatory affairs professionals. And if you go on their website, they have listings of, of regulatory uh, people who are actually certified. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, obviously in this age of the internet, you can do your own searches. Um, there are a number of different ways to, to come across um, regulatory professionals. And I think the main thing, to your point, that you want to have a conversation with that person about their comfort level with your area mm-hmm. or your device type or whatever um, and um, your comfort level with them. It's, you know, I mean, to me, working in this arena with the FDA it's about relationships and conversations and the ability to communicate. So finding a person that you can do that with in terms of the regulatory expertise, if they need to go and research something to figure it out, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the regulatory environment and landscape changes. Um, so you need someone who can know where to go to figure things out and who to ask and when to ask as much as someone who already has all the expertise in their head. You're not necessarily always going to find that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So. Great. Well, thank you. I'm sure we could keep talking about this for a really oh, long yes. time. <laughs> uh, but uh, I know this is going to be helpful. This has been helpful to me, uh, even though I have a little bit of a background in it. Um, I think it's going to be really helpful to uh, to our audience and to folks who are just starting out on that, on that journey to... Uh, to bring their products to market. So, Monica, I want to thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. It's it's actually something that I love to talk about. I love my work. So. That's great. That's great. <laughs> it's always changing. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks. And that's our show. Hopefully you found this helpful and interesting. And if you did, please let us know by visiting smithwise.com and clicking the contact button at the top of the page to share your thoughts with us. If you didn't, we want to hear that too. We want to hear why not and what we can do better next time. MedTech Mindset is produced by SmithWise right here in our Philadelphia office. Our theme music is composed and personally curated by the Polish ambassador. Thanks to Monica Ferrante for being our guest today and sharing her insights with us. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time on MedTech Mindset.